we'll be looking at Ephesians 3, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 21, because the original plan for today's sermon was to actually preach 14 through 21. But then the tragedy in Texas changed some of that. And while I don't ever want to necessarily preach anything that would come off as political or let what's happening in the world dictate what's being preached from the pulpit, it seemed providential that we would be beginning this closing prayer that Paul's been trying to get to for the past several verses, but but that it would start right when all this happens. And especially with kind of what is happening in our country as we try to figure out what to do. And I'll I'll get to that in a minute, because I think this text, especially just verse 14, shows us what we can do as Christians. Not everything that we can do, but one big thing that we can do for our nation during times of tragedy and for right now. So please turn the attention, your attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 14, going through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, my prayer today for us is that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you would be at work in us for your glory, for the glory of your Son. Work in our hearts today, Father, that we would hear this word that you've given us, And that our hearts would be stirred, Father, to pray, to pray always, to pray without ceasing, as Paul says in Thessalonians. Be with us now, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Greta had her surgery on Wednesday, and so I was quite distracted uh, most of the day with her. She did great. She's fine. But Amanda came rushing out at some point late in the afternoon after we'd gotten home and told me about the tragedy that happened in Texas. And like many people then, we spent you know, the rest of the evening kind of going through everything that was happening. And because we had been removed so much for the day focused on our daughter, we were playing catch-up at this point. And we've been playing catch-up as we continue to hear reports I mean, one of, the, one of the tragedies of all of this is the tragedy of trying to get too much information out too quickly because we're constantly being updated with something that was reported incorrectly or maybe even flat out lied about. But as we have faced yet another tragedy, one that's become all too familiar since I was in the eighth grade with the Columbine shooting, 
there's something that's happening in us, and I think it's a sickness in our hearts that as we try to debate what's the best measure to protect children in schools, and we have people lobbying for stricter gun control laws, people lobbying for less gun control laws, people advocating for more mental health screening, people advocating for more police in schools. The one thing that everyone seems absolutely tired of, though, is the sentiment of thoughts and prayers. It is quipped that politicians use this all too easily to sidestep the confrontation of trying to address the problem. Or Christians are targeted as being too spiritually minded to be of any earthly good. This is just yet another way that we can sidestep our own responsibilities, if we even have any, to our communities. And I've seen it increase over the past couple of years. Somebody shares about praying, and I've had friends comment, prayer is not enough. Prayer is not going to solve it. We have to do more. Pray on your own time, but right now there's action. Action is required. The single greatest thing that we can do from a biblical perspective in times of tragedy, whether it's your own personal tragedies of suffering through, you know, alongside somebody who is failing in health or a cancer diagnosis or a child who is driving you to your, to your wit's end or navigating what to do with your future and feeling already pressures, the single greatest thing you can ever do, according to God's word, is pray. Pray for those in need. Pray for wisdom. Pray for guidance. It's not the only thing you can do, but it is the greatest thing you can do. And we see Paul exemplify that. But most of the sermon isn't even about what he says. It's pretty, uh, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He's just building up to the prayer. But he prays. And the, the, the big picture is he is not praying in his private prayer study. He's not praying in the comfort of his own home. He is not praying, you know, during his private quiet time or something. He's praying in prison. He's praying chained to another human being, stripped of most of his freedoms with a very uh, uncertain future. And he takes time to, first of all, write letters to saints that he loves and encourage them and to pray for them. Paul's greatest mercy at work right now when he was in prison was at, next to his writing ministry. It was his praying ministry. So I want us to look at his example here. Look at what he does and even the way he just phrases this uh, opening part of his prayer for the Ephesians. So to remind you, verse 14 begins, for this reason. He has a, he has a purpose for prayer and he, he's picking up where he left off at the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1, because it begins the same way, and it's the same way in the Greek. He said in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then there's like a pause, and he kind of diverges and goes down a rabbit trail of what it means to be, and we went through this the past couple weeks, what it means to be a minister. What is he doing for them? What does it mean to be the church why, why, why is he there? What's the church's responsibility in the world? What's the point of the gospel? And then he's all of a sudden kind of come full circle and picked back up where he left off and remembers, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to be praying. So for this reason, where I'm picking up where I left off, 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul had a purpose for prayer. I mean, that, that's what we need. I mean, that's usually what drives prayer, right? There's a purpose behind it. There's something happening in our lives or in the world that pushes us and urges us to say, I, I need to pray. There's, I need to go before God for this issue in my life confronting me or for wisdom. Or I need to go before God because of something that's just taken my breath away of his mercy and grace, and I want to give him thanks for what he has done in my life. That's still prayer. So what is prayer then? One of the the great Puritans, William Bridge, said, Prayer is the pouring out of the soul to God. Not the pouring out of words, nor the pouring out of expressions, but the pouring out of the soul to God. Paul later saying in Romans that he has prayed you know, with groanings just that don't even turn into words. He p- prays from his heart. It is a communication that we get to have with the creator of the universe. I mean, how amazing is that? That God invites us to pray to him. And if you think back to the beginning narrative of Genesis, the author even takes time to point out at a certain point in history, people started calling out to the Lord. They started petitioning to God, praising God. And true prayer, true heartfelt prayer, and this is something that Amanda and I were talking about recently because she came across it in a book on prayer that she was reading. She asked, the author said something like, the prayer that God likes or the prayer that God honors. And Amanda said, is it, are there prayers that God doesn't like or that God doesn't hear? And we talked about it for a minute, and I have to think that there are. See, prayer, first of all, for it to be true, genuine Christian prayer, is we pray to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer itself is not Christian. Every known religion on the planet prays. Even, according to statistics, atheists pray when they're really pushed to it. There was a statistic recently that was reported that millennials, which is my generation, were already being passed in the news by the people that are coming after us. But millennials, 52% of whom say they look to religion for guidance, the same people say 62% of them still talk privately to God. They may not want to go to church on a Sunday, but they'll still pray to God. Now, given other research into my generation's views of God, this isn't necessarily a big win for piety. We're an incredibly selfish generation. Prayer is not selfish. True prayer, prayer that God would honor. It's not selfish. My generation has been ca- called uh, as having formed a religion of therapeutic moralism, moralistic deism. That is, big words, a sociologist came up with it, so that's why it's so long. But he he researched the way my generation, the one a little bit before me, a little bit after me, started talking about God. And what he came up with was, it is not the biblical God. Even from some of those in churches, what they are hearing from pulpits, what they are hearing from their parents, and what they're hearing from culture is basically, God just wants you to be happy. God just wants you to give you things. Anything bad in your life, any challenges that you face, any of that nasty sin, that's not 
that's not what it's all about. God is just this giant genie in the sky waiting to give you everything that you could ever want. So no wonder 62% of these people still pray privately to God because they want to rub the genie's lamp and see if he'll give them gifts. But prayer, if it is anything biblical, is not selfish. And we see that modeled here. Paul is sitting next to a man in chains, and he says, for this reason, for the very chains that are binding me right now, I'm going to pray for you. Pray that God would be rich in mercy to you through Jesus Christ. Pray that God would give you knowledge of his son. Pray that you would grow in knowledge, in mercy, that you would grow as he keeps growing the church together, learning to love one another, learning to sacrifice for one another. Paul would say in Philippians that, you would, that they would learn to be humble counting others in the church as more significant than yourselves. Beating one another out for good works and love. Not because we get extra rewards or goodies in heaven, but because that is what the gospel does to our hearts. It's the way we show love. So what are some reasons that we could pray? We can pray like Paul did earlier in the beginning of Ephesians. In verse 15, he begins, or yeah, in chapter 1, verse 15, he begins the same way, for this reason. And then he goes off into this huge prayer of thanksgiving for the Ephesians' faith. He's heard about the way they've continued to grow in the gospel since he was last with them, and he's stirred to give a prayer up of thanks and adoration to God who's been at work in this church. Every church planter I've ever met, First of all, they're a very rare and interesting breed, but especially the ones that God has blessed. I mean, it's a hard thing for them to leave the church once it's planted. Oftentimes, it becomes necessary. They realize that the church needs to turn because it can get very wrapped around the church planter's personality, and they do this incredibly sacrificial thing where they move on. They go plant another church, or maybe they go be a pastor at some other church, but it's a hard thing to leave, and they they don't stop praying for the churches they planted. And they rejoice when they hear 10, 5, 10, 15 years later that they're still going strong. But it's, it's a hard thing. So that's what Paul's moved to. We see him give thanksgiving and adoration. Job is an entire book of praying when everything in your life is falling apart and you have no reason why. You, you don't. I mean, that's the constant communication is Job's friends are saying, you had to have screwed up. There's something you've done wrong some way you've affronted God. And Job keeps saying, I don't know what it, what it is, but I'm not going to curse God. I'm going to keep seeking him. There's Abraham in Genesis 18, where we see him intercede for people who do not know God and are in a city that we, is synonymous with sin, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he intercedes on behalf of those people, with God, we see that we can pray for those that do not know the Lord, and the Lord will hear our prayers. The Lord will respond. As we pray every Sunday, Jesus himself, when he was here, of all the miracles he did that we have recorded, of all the, the wonderful teachings that we have recorded, he, he gave us a prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, and we pray it every Sunday. I mean, we taught it to our kids when they were you know, real young, so that's really the first prayer that they learned, because it is one of the most perfect prayers. 
You have thanksgiving, you have adoration, you have confession, you have prayers for mercy, prayers to love others, prayers to seek God. I mean, it's all encapsulated into just a few verses. These are all examples just from Scripture alone of how, uh, of, of, for reasons that we can and should pray. And this kind of leads, though, into my second point, the practice of prayer, because how, how do we pray? I mean, it's, it's one of those things, like, there's no how-to guide to it. You just start pouring out. I mean, in the examples of Scripture, sometimes people just start pouring out praise and prayers. But when we get time to do it, and if I'm being honest, it can be a chore. Uh, Charles Simeon, one of the great evangelical preachers in England, said that a pastor has no problem preparing to study for five hours a text of scripture to expound to his congregation, but he's going to struggle to pray for them for 30 minutes. Prayer can be difficult. Uh, when growing up, one of my family's favorite movies was Sister Act. If you remember with Whoopi Goldberg, she's the singer in Reno who has to go into witness protection as a nun. It's hilarious. My grandfather grew up with a bunch of nuns in Catholic school, so he always thought uh, it is one of his favorite movies. But on her first day in the convent, with her habit on and everything, and she's meeting all the other sisters, and there are, she's just been told all the rules. You can't do this. You can't do that. We don't eat for like a large portion of the day. Uh, one of the sisters asks Whoopi Goldberg's character if she would say the blessing. And so Whoopi Goldberg says, sure, I can say the blessing. And this is her prayer. Bless us, O Lord, for these thy gifts, which we are about to receive off to a good start. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of no food, I will fear no hunger. We want you to give us this day our daily bread and to the republic for which it stands. And by the power invested, invested in me, I pronounce us ready to eat. Amen. And everyone's looking at each other kind of weird and awkward, but it worked. How do we pray? I mean, some of us probably feel like Whoopi Goldberg in that moment fumbling around. Do I, is prayer, is the practice of prayer limited to specific words and actions? I mean, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. We don't know if he literally had the time to bow his knees. He's probably speaking figuratively. In Scripture, we see that there are times where people pray standing up. In Paul's day, it would have been very common if you went to the temple to see men standing up and holding their hands up like this to pray. This isn't Pentecostal. This was Jewish practice. Or there are other times when people fall on their knees. Think of Hannah when she's near the tabernacle praying for a child. We're told that she is on her knees mumbling to herself to the point that uh, Samuel thinks she's drunk. Or Eli, rather. This captures that prayer is much more about the movement of the heart than it is the body. And that we have to be careful to reject both an over-formalistic and ritualistic aspect of prayer and one that takes it too far in liberty. For formalism, you can think of, if you've ever attended a Catholic service, you are going to your knees a lot and then you're standing up. Then you're going back down, then you're standing up. It is when my wife and I first started attending an Episcopal church, it's very similar, and we felt the same thing. We were up and down, up and down. And some people can, can think of that. Not all, but some people could say, this is the only way God will hear my prayers. Now, there's, there's beauty to submitting yourself and getting on your knees. One of my 
uh, dear professors at seminary, had spent many years at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, which is a historic uh, church right there at one of our uh, top evangelical college. And there was a, a husband and wife that gave all sorts of money and service to the, to the school and had a wonderful, fruitful years of ministry there. And uh, he knew them very well. Well, she tragically had gotten older, her health uh, started to fail, and she died. And when he was um, attending the wake and kind of going around room to room, he went for just a few moments to her little private study area where she would have her morning devotions and prayer. And he was looking around at her chair and where all of her books were, and he noticed right by the ottoman or the, the part of the chair, there were indents. And he put his hand over him, and it was indents from where her knees had been sitting for years of prayer. It wasn't ritualistic. I mean, only her husband would turn out, and her kids really knew that's how she prayed. But she got down on bended knee for intercession, for praying for wisdom on how to parent, praying for her health up until the day she died. And then there's also the, the tendency to be too liberal or too free with our prayers. I'll never forget the first time I heard a friend begin a prayer with, Sweet Daddy Jesus. That's a bit too much familiarity to go before the creator of heaven and earth, who usually likes to just be called Father. The practice of prayer isn't so much about formality or liberality. It's about the, the heart's movement. And so we can kind of wonder, how, well, how do I even begin to pray? Richard Sibbs said, by prayer, we learn to pray. Just start doing it. And there are resources that can help you. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes our minds wander and it needs to be trained into thinking what to, to say or given words. There are wonderful resources like the Valley of Vision put out by Banner of Truth, which is just a collection of these rich prayers for all sorts of circumstances, for health, for sanctification, for wisdom, for missions. There's Matthew's Henry, uh, Matthew Henry's How a Method of Prayer, I think it's called, or Martin Luther's great little booklet on a simple way to pray, which he wrote for his barber who was wondering, how do I pray? And Martin Luther said, I, I, I can write something for you. And then you can go to, to Scripture, We've already talked about the Lord's Prayer, but there are tons of prayers. I mean, the Psalms is just a giant prayer book. And sometimes it will give us boldness that we want to shrink back from. But as Christians, we're, we're called to pray. And so we need to make it our practice, bowing our knees, whether with our, our hearts or our actual physical knees, going to God the Father. There is no time like the present to start this. John Bunyan said, pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. He's not going to mess with saints at prayer, and if he does, he's not going to get very far. This brings us to the person of prayer. Paul's talked about his reason, his, his, his purpose of praying was for the saints how he bows his knees, his practice of praying. But now, the person of prayer. This isn't us. It's the person we're praying to. I bow my knees before the Father. Prayer is coming before God the Father. In, in verse 12, Paul said to them, 
that through Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have confident access to go before God the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ. And this boldness, the language all there is that we are free to express ourselves and that God wants us to. He is inviting us. He is waiting for us to pray. And we get to address him as Father. Remember, at the beginning of Ephesians, Paul talked about how before Christ, we were children of disobedience. But through Christ, we are now children of God. We get to go to him no longer with fear of wrath, but expecting mercy and grace. Another Puritan had said, the word Father is a sweet word, for it's sweet for it sweetens all our duties. Take the word Father out of prayer and how sour it is. To go before God as Father and come to him with a bold, confident access because of Jesus Christ, knowing that, as Jesus said to the disciples, our God is a good Father. He's going to give us good gifts, just like human fathers don't give their kids snakes or rocks or you know, bad gifts. They, they're supposed to give them care and nurture. I know we're in the country. Maybe they gave them snakes because it was cool and they were showing like I shot this or something. I don't know. I didn't grow up in the country. We, we don't have snakes in New York. Not like y'all have them down here in Alabama. But we have this person that we get to go to in prayer. God the Father. Prayer is giving to this Father what is already His. A lot of the Puritans, as I was reading and preparing for this, they constantly came back to this idea that prayer is breathing back to God the breath that He gave us in life. It is giving Him our whole souls. It's already His. The time that we spend in it is already time that He's graced us to have. Prayer is giving back to God the Father what He asks for. Right? He asks for confession. He asks for uh, intercession for others. He asks us to come to him. And then praying to God the Father is giving him what he deserves, giving him adoration, spending time thanking and meditating on all the ways he blesses us and gives good things to us. John David on Friday gave a wonderful valedictorian speech, and the salutatorian did an excellent job as well, but both of them took time to thank and, and reflect on everyone that had gotten them to that point. If we're going to do that, which was good, for the people in our lives, how much more should we be doing that for the God who gives us life, for the Son who makes life eternal possible, for the Spirit who is constantly guiding us on how to navigate life right now? We do it through prayer, through spending time just reflecting on him. That is one of the areas that I had to grow the most and still have to grow the most. It's easy for me to pray for me, to pray for the, to pray for the needs and sorrows and pains I'm going through. It's easy for me to pray for my daughters and for Amanda and for my family or for other brothers in Christ and for this church, but it can be challenging to pray to God just giving him thanks for who he is, and that's wrong. I need to grow in that, and I'm encouraging you all and challenging you all to grow in prayer the most in that. In The Magician's Nephew, which I'm currently listening to for like the sixth or seventh time, there's a wonderful line in there about basically prayer. And the two children that have been sent on a task by Aslan are starting to realize that they're annoyed that Aslan didn't know that they're going to need dinner and they're going to need water and things like that. And their guide, who is a pegasus, a winged horse, says, well, we didn't really ask, did we? 
And the kids say, well, he should have known. He's Aslan. And the horse responds, yeah, I get the feeling he likes to be asked, though. It's kind of like, it's kind of like my children right now expecting me just to know exactly what they want, like I'm somehow telepathic. But they, they could get what they want if they asked. And they certainly can't get what they want if they don't ask, or if they whine, or if they start throwing temper tantrums and have to read between the lines of everything. But God likes to be asked. So come to him. Ask him. He is. The Bible describes God most as long-suffering and patient. If the Israelites could not vex him to the point of completely destroying them in the wilderness, if he did not completely destroy them in the exile, he is certainly not going to get tired of you coming to him praying for your needs and the needs of those you love. Now I'll close with this about prayer, and it's circling full circle to the beginning. Thoughts and prayers. Prayer is the most important thing we can do for any tragedy. It's not the only thing we can do, but it's the most important. In uh, World War II, at the Battle of Okinawa, it's 1945, a young man by the name of Private First Class Desmond Dross was an army medic, and he was inf- uh, famously also uh, a conscientious objector. He didn't want to shoot. He didn't want to fight, but he wanted to serve. So he petitioned the army. It was a whole big thing, but he, he got to serve as a medical assistant. And as his unit, the 77th Infantry Division, uh, came to the Battle of Okinawa, they had to scale this massive cliff face. Now, as he got up to the cliff face, their entire unit was attacked several casualties, but Private First Class Doss refused to seek cover during this time and remained under heavy fire with many dead around him. But the injured, he started carrying one by one to the edge of the cliff, lowering down by a rope litter that he made himself down to the rock face where there were infantrymen still down there. The next day, while still under heavy fire, he exposed himself to rifle fire, mortar fire. He rescued a a wounded man 200 yards ahead of him and did the same thing, lowered him down the uh, cliff face. Two days later, while still having no rest, he treated four men who had been uh, cut down by heavy machine gun fire. He advanced through a shower of grenades to within eight yards of the enemy's forces in a cave he, healed, he addressed all the men's wounds before taking them on four separate trips through all the machine gun fire, all the grenade fire, and did the same thing, evacuated them to safety. Two more days later, same thing. He assisted an artillery officer, applied bandages, moved his uh, patient to a spot that offered better protection. Then he was under heavy machine gun and mortar shells while he meticulously tended to this man's wounds, and then again dragged him to the precipice and lowered him down. He does this a few more times. He eventually is injured from a grenade. Rather than call for help, he cared for his own injuries, waited five hours until somebody came for him, and began, this person began to lead him towards the same cliff face that he'd been lowering all these men down. But as they were going towards the cliff, First class, first, private first class Doss saw a man that was more wounded than him and insisted that he be lowered first. 
He eventually, after days under heavy artillery, grenade, machine gun fire, having saved almost 100 men by himself, and even having uh, suffered a compound fracture, which he splint using a broken rifle butt, crawled 300 yards uh, over all this terrain by himself and was lowered down, he finally gets to safety. He was awarded the Medal of Honor, the Purple Heart, multiple bronze bronze stars for his bravery. He did a lot. The greatest thing he did when he was asked about why he sacrificed so much. Why did he keep going back when nobody would have thought him a coward for eventually just taking a break. He said for every person he got to the cliff and lowered down, he prayed, Lord, help me get one more. Help me save one more. Prayer is the greatest thing we can do. Not the only thing, but it is the greatest It was the greatest that Doss did. It's the greatest thing that Paul did. And remember, even the Savior on the cross said and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Prayer is powerful. It's purposeful. And we just have to practice it. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you that you've opened up a way for us to communicate with you. Thank you that you've visited us. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, that you invite us to talk with you. Where our, not just with words, but with our our deep emotions and our hearts and our souls. Thank you that your son has made all of that possible, that we can go to you boldly, that there's no longer sacrifices, there's no longer curtains, there's no longer all these things separating us from you because of your your holiness, but that all that has been stripped away through the work of Jesus Christ, and we can come boldly to you as children, as blood-bought children. Pray that we would grow in prayer, that we would grow in trust and confidence to come to you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. I invite you now to please